So mm-hmm. we, we lose respect for the, for the sign language itself because we attach it to the disability. And then we're not able to see, let alone the beauty, we're not able to see the linguistic potential of the language because we see it as so other from what we, what we know as, as language. Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. Today's guest is Dr. Amanda Howerton Fox, an assistant professor of language and literacy, TEDx speaker, and thought leader on deaf culture. I was lucky enough to be in the audience for Amanda's TEDx talk, entitled Language Beyond the Sound Barrier, and found her insights into deaf culture so fascinating, I knew I had to bring her on the show. We spoke about her wild and winding career path, her counterintuitive work in deaf education, and of course, Amanda shares her story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. This conversation will expand your perspective. So get comfortable, keep an open mind, and please enjoy. So we we actually met at uh, a TEDx conference that that you were speaking at, and I'd like to get to that um, eventually. But let me start here. When you meet someone at a social gathering or you know a networking event, and they ask, "What do you do?" How do you answer? Oh, so that is a difficult question. Um, I always have trouble with that question um, because I try to answer it in a way that would make the most sense to who's ever asking it. Um, I am a professor of literacy education, language and literacy education at a small college in New York. Um, But my background is in deaf education. And so the research that I do is all in schools for the deaf. so I guess in the most simple explanation, I would say I am a, I'm a literacy professor who does research in deaf education contexts. Of, of all those different roles, as all, all those different hats that you wear, you're, you're a teacher, you're a researcher, uh, where do you feel most at home? I'd say equally. I feel equally at home in schools for the deaf, working with teachers to help them improve their practices or understand their students, um, develop their understanding of language. I feel really at home there. And I also feel really at home at my computer by myself um, doing sort of traditional library research, reading research articles in the field and um, putting my ideas together in, in that kind of format. So, the, but, you know, also, I, I, too, um, I, I equally at home working with young people who want to become teachers and don't really have any background in understanding how language and literacy develop and helping them get a better picture of how children come to be readers and writers and uh, speakers and listeners and help them with, with that too. So, um, all of those places feel, feel like home. It must feel really good to actually be in a situation in your career where the handful of different things you're doing are all things that you actually feel at home and feel comfortable doing. Was, was there ever a time when you weren't sure about something you were doing or a track you were on, you know, where you weren't before you got to that point? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I'm at an amazing place right now where I look around quite often and cannot believe that I get to do all the things that I love to do. And I mostly get paid to do all the things I love to do and I'm expected to do them. It's phenomenal. Um, so I wouldn't say I was ever, um, 
unsure, but I will say I never really knew what the path was. I was always guided by um, the next thing that seemed the most interesting and the most engaging. Um, so I, I transferred schools when I was in college. I started out in communication, mass communication. I wanted to be the next Connie Chung, which some of your mm -hmm. listeners may have heard of, but I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. Um, and very quickly, with the experience of reading other people's words on a teleprompter and trying to look as attractive as possible while I was doing that, I decided that was not a field for me um, and really got interested in English and in reading um literature and so transferred schools where I could really get engaged in, a, in an English program, but there was exposed to bilingualism and education and how difficult it is for some children to access language and literacy and went on to sort of an experimental master's degree, which drove my parents crazy because they wanted to know what I was going to get out of this master's degree. And I had no idea except that I wasn't done figuring out what I wanted to do. And this master's degree was going to help me do that, I thought. Um, so I got a master's in language and literacy education that didn't lead to any kind of certification. I was not qualified to do anything when I, when I graduated. Um, but while I was there, I took a class where a professor mentioned um, how difficult it was to teach children who can't hear how to read and write because we teach through the letter sound relationships. And if they don't have the sounds to connect the letters, then sort of all of our instructional approaches fall flat. And I found that really interesting. And so I chose to do a research paper on that. Um, and that started my interest in deaf ed. I took some sign language classes. So then my next master's was in deaf education. Um, really, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a learner. <laughs> I just mm -hmm. kept going to school, for, you know. Um, so I always knew what I want, that what I was doing, I wanted to be doing in the moment, but I never really knew where that was, where that was going. Um, so after my deaf ed, um, masters, I did go and teach in a school for the deaf for a year, which is what I truly believed I wanted to be doing was to be, you know, in a school for the deaf, making a difference, helping them connect to, to reading and writing. Um, and that was a very depressing experience on a number of levels, um, which I can talk about more, but I, sure. I had to leave that. Um, I just, I had to get out of that situation. And I really, that was the one point when I really said, I don't know what's next. I'm going to wait tables until I figure it out, but I, but I can't be there anymore, but I didn't want to leave deafness. Um, but I didn't know exactly how I wanted to come back at it, but essentially I was in, in that job. Um, I wasn't able to make any of the kinds of changes that I felt were really necessary in deaf education. I was just made to, be a cog in the machine of what was already happening. Um, and I had been given the impression before getting that job that I would be allowed to be a change agent in the school. And then once I got in there, that, that wasn't what happened. And I couldn't continue to live in a space where I felt like children were not meeting their potential and people didn't have high enough expectations for them, didn't have the knowledge they needed to have to, to really teach them to read and write. Um, so in that transition period where I wasn't sure what I was going to do, I was offered the chance to get a PhD at no cost because my former advisor had gotten a grant and he was able to fund my PhD. And it was in deaf education with a focus on applied linguistics. So I couldn't say no to that. I wasn't sure it was the thing I should be doing right then, but I couldn't give up that opportunity. Um, so that was the thing I did then. And then I feel like I'm going on and on. But I, I during that process, I got a certificate in TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages, because I saw the connections between um, teaching second language hearing students and teaching deaf children who sign. Um, my husband got a job offer in Sweden and I moved there. So I taught English in Sweden. And all this comes down to say that at every point I was doing what interested me. Um, and then I ended up sort of back, back in New York and, um, 
I got an adjunct position at Iona that a friend had made me aware of. And there happened to be an opening in that same school where they said, we want someone who has a knowledge of teaching English as a second language, has a knowledge of special education, and has a knowledge of language and literacy. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's that's what I've done for the past <laughs> 17 years, right? Like I would never, I wasn't looking for that job, right? But that was the job that was there. Um, and so, yes, the, the short answer is now I'm doing all the things I love. Mm. All along, I've done some of the things I love and they've kind of all fallen into, into place. I'm constantly, you know, just amazed when I talk to successful people, high achieving people, how often it seems like along the way, it would kind of seem like luck that you fell into this and you fell into that. And I was just, uh, how often I feel like inspirational speakers, motivational speakers don't recognize the nature or the role that luck plays in success. There's a lot of focus on talent and hard work and motivation. And it's like, yeah, all that is true but you still have to get a little lucky. You have to have that professor who gets the grant money and happens to be in a PhD that's exactly the thing you want to do, right? You, you still, no matter how much you've trained and prepared, you need that moment. Um, it sounds like what you've done so well is put yourself over the years in the best position within which a lucky moment can, can come by by doing the things that you love and pursuing the things that you care about. Would, is that how you would, you would look at it? Yeah. So I've thought, I've thought a lot about that because it does feel a lot of things feel uncannily lucky. Um, and the way I think about it is yes, that I've always been driven by, um, by what I love and not what, by what I'm afraid of. I think growing up, I saw a lot of adults who made choices based on what they were afraid might happen if they did a certain thing. Um, and I, I didn't like how that looked. I didn't like how it, it looked like it felt to live a life like that. And so I decided um, I, I'm just going to go with what I love. And I, 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 maybe this is just hopeful, you know, but I feel like if you're putting yourselves, con you're putting yourself constantly in situations where you're doing what you love, people, people respond to that. People's, you can tell when someone loves something and when they're just doing it because they should, or they feel like it's the next best step. And people respond to you and give you opportunities when they see that you love something. So the more that you're in those spaces, I feel the more you're going to have the opportunities appear and then being aware of what, what are the opportunities that allow you to follow what you love and being willing to, to take that risk. I mean, in some ways that PhD was a, was a risk, right? Cause I sure. wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it. And people kept asking me, do you want to be a professor? And I said, I don't really know, but this is a great opportunity. <laughs> I want to, mm -hmm. I want to do this research and I want to take these classes and I want to do this work. So yeah, I think it's a, it, it, it has to have something to do with being in the spaces where you're, you're happy and passionate and people connect to that. So on, on that, I'd like to pivot because now you, you've kind of brought us into the topic of of opportunities that come through connections, which the connections that you make when you're doing what you love. Before we get to your story that I know uh, you're, you're here to tell is the whole point of the podcast, uh, the whole point of the show. In your TEDx talk, which I'm gonna link in the show notes because it's so good and it's so uh, enlightening for someone who doesn't know anything as I didn't about uh, what you describe as as kind of deaf culture and and the 
the kind of whole field surrounding uh, literacy and learning and development um, and, and, you know, looking at sign language as uh, literally until your talk, I had never looked at sign language as a different language, let alone, as you said, hundreds of, of more languages. Right. Um, and, but what I was really excited about, or at least really intrigued by, is at the very beginning of your TEDx talk, you describe the human tendency to create a boundary between self and other. And arguably, we need to categorize, right? Humans, we have this, we we have a, we need to categorize, otherwise we couldn't live our lives on a daily basis. We would just fall apart. But this particular categorization, you uh, between self and other, you describe as destructive, especially when language gets caught up in the middle. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes. So uh, particularly in the field of, of deaf education, I think um, although there's sort of a general appreciation for the beauty of sign language, I think most people who have seen an interpreter or have seen a deaf person, they're kind of intrigued by language on the hands and they think it's interesting. Um, when you push that further and they need to imagine themselves as having a child, for example, that can only communicate via sign language, right? That, 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 that suddenly makes that child an other in a way that people aren't comfortable with because that's a child suddenly looks like someone with a disability, somebody who can't, right? So even though in and of itself, we can appreciate sign language, it, when, when people use it, um, as their only means of communication, a predominantly hearing world sees them as a different kind of person. Um, and in some ways, in many ways, as a less able kind of person. And they, the sign language itself gets marked as connected with that disability, which we see not just as different, but as less than, right? So we, we lose respect for the for the sign language itself, because we attach it to the disability. And then we're not able to see, let alone the beauty, we're not able to see the linguistic potential of the language because we see it as so other from what we, what we know as, as language, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it got me thinking about how I've met uh, is the, is the proper term deaf people? Uh, how would, would, is that how you would say that? Yeah. You okay. can say that. Mm -hmm. Just want to make sure we use respectful, you know, language. I've met deaf people, but I've met more blind, uh, people. And from my own personal experience, and this may be different for others, obviously I, I don't know when I meet someone who is blind, I don't find it terribly difficult to connect with them uh, any differently than I would someone who is not blind, who is sighted, uh, because there's something about the voice that is very intimate. But when I meet someone who is deaf, for some reason, my brain gets more flustered, I think, trying to find ways to connect with them um, without being able to to use language. Uh, so I guess my question to you is if if you meet someone who's deaf, what is something you can do or what are the best ways that you can connect with them um, in, in a way that, you know, that doesn't seem like you're treating them as other? Like, so, you, you know, your intentions are pure. You want to connect with them like anybody else. What, how do you do that? So I think the best thing to do is to follow their lead because they've spent their whole life trying to connect with 
people who can't sign. <laughs> they have a lot of experience in trying to connect with people who don't have that ability. And so they've learned a lot of strategies for making themselves understood and for understanding other people. And for some of them, that will be using some of their hearing um, or it will be showing you some signs or writing something down or um, you'd be amazed at how adept deaf people are at using the visual resources we do have to communicate. There's so much you can communicate without talking. And you start to realize that when you interact with deaf people, even if you don't sign, like if you've been in an American sign language class with its voice off from the moment you walk in within the first 15 minutes, you are floored by how much you could understand going on in that room with no one opening their mouths. Right. <laughs> so they're really good at, at visual communication and, and at making things work. And so being open to that and following their lead is what would be my, my suggestion. That's a great suggestion. I feel like that's, um, yeah, I feel like that's a universal suggestion. And, and, and as, as you're saying that it's making me remember, I think I told this story in my book, although it took three years to write it. So I'm not sure anymore which stories are in there. <laughs> um, there was a time when I, I remember doing a close up magic, uh, gig, you know, going group to group, table to table for hours. I used to do a lot of those. And I went up to, and I, I said to, um, a mother with a young child, maybe six or seven years old, a boy. I said, would you like to see some magic? And, and she said, um, he doesn't speak any English. Right. And it was broke. Anyway, her, her English was broken, but you know, she was able to communicate, but she said, he doesn't speak any English. And I said, you know, no problem. And I just got down to his level, got, got down on a knee and I took out a pack of playing cards and without saying a word, I just started pantomiming what I needed him to do. I'd spread the cards and gesture and he understood kind of culturally to take one out. And, and I like, you know, pointed to my eye and he looked at it and I pointed to my head and he, you know, to, to say, remember it. Like I had an internal monologue, like an internal dialogue imagined going on that I was trying to communicate. And, and at the end of it, essentially he had a card in his hand that was not his card. And I snapped my fingers and he turned it over and it was his card without it ever leaving his hand. And he just, his jaw dropped dropped and this huge <laughs> smile broke out and he looked up at mom and mom was just smiling. And this, this, I'll never forget that moment where, you know, in this art form where I, I'm more of a talker as a magician, I'm a less visual entertainer. I come from kind of academic backgrounds and my instinct is to, to almost magic of the mind more than anything. I'm not so much into the classic style visual magic. And it just, it blew me away that I was able to connect with someone using magic um, without without the, the tools of language at all. I wanna ask you about a chance encounter. As you know, that's the whole idea of this show. It's so often that we can only tell looking backwards the you know variety of events and the different random things that happen or at least seemingly random things that happen uh, that lead us to where we need to be we've talked a lot about your your path and your 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 story is there one particular kind of you know chance encounter that really had a lasting impact on you Yes. Yeah, so I mean, there's a few, but the one I really want to focus on um, actually only happened a couple of years ago in um, 
you know, April of, of 2017. And I was just when I'd gotten back into the field. So I was out of academics, out of deaf education um, for a good four years. Um, I had my third child and I was home with her and I was enjoying that time. And I wasn't sure uh, when I was going to go back or what I was going to do. Um, and one way or another, I'd gotten, I had gotten my position, um, at, at, at a college as a professor. And so one of my main professional goals that year was just to reconnect with the field because it'd been a good seven years since I'd been to a, a deaf education conference or an education conference in general. I was out of touch with a lot of people that I used to work closely with. Um, and so I just signed up for all of the, the major conferences in my field. And at the first one that year, um, I walked into the, the deaf education business meeting at, at the big educational conference. Um, and I'm not a very, um, socially open with new people. I have a hard time just introducing myself. I tend to wait to get introduced or, but I had decided, you know, I'm here to meet people. If I meet people, I'm going to say hello. I'm going to introduce myself. And so I sat down in the aisle across from a woman I'd never seen before, um, and so I, I turned back to her to make myself available for conversation. And she um, signed to me because we were in a, in a deaf ed context. She signed, um, hi, my name's Jody. And I signed back, nice to meet you. My name's Amanda. Um, and just, you know, pleasantries. She said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from New York. And we were in, um, we were in Texas for this conference. She, and she said, oh, really, me too. I'm from New York. And, um, you know, all of this is inside. I'm like, oh, what part? And she signs New Rochelle, which is where my college is, right? It's <laughs> the town that I work in and it's 10 minutes from my house. And I, I, I always questioned myself, especially since I was rusty on my sign. I've been out for a while and I thought she didn't just say New Rochelle. So I, I signed it again, New Rochelle. She said, yes. And I said, I live in, in Eastchester. I work in New Rochelle. And both of us to these faces, <laughs> are we understanding this conversation? Um, and I, and I said, you know, what do you do? And she said, um, I'm a supervisor at St. Joe's School for the Deaf, which is, you know, obviously one of the schools near from us. And um, she said, I recently graduated. I got my PhD at Teachers College in Columbia. And I said, I recently graduated and got my PhD at Teachers College Columbia. It was a, it was a very <laughs> strange conversation. Um, so it turned out, um, yes, that we lived down the road from each other, um, that we'd actually um, not followed similar paths, but... Um, she, you know, I finished my PhD a few years earlier than she had, but that's when I kind of stepped out of the field and focused on my family. And she had just finished and was here to present her dissertation research. So in any case, that was our, that was our first meeting. And then we, then we stayed for the business meeting and, and heard all of that, but neither of us had known that a woman we both work with had already decided that we needed to meet and had planned to invite us both to dinner that evening. Right. So I had dinner with her that evening and, um, and we talked about all of our similarities and what's fascinating fascinating about um, our story is that not only to become fast friends, I mean, we're, we just became extremely close very quickly, um, but our work dovetailed so beautifully into each other's because I was, you know, I was at this small college in New Rochelle with no deaf education department. I was teaching literacy courses, which I enjoy, but it's not it's not my passion. My passion is, my passion is, is deaf education. Um, and I was, one of my major goals was to make connections with some of the schools for the deaf to see if I could begin working with them on not only development, but on research. And so she was a wonderful connection in that way. Um, 
And she just so happened her her school was in the middle of beginning a transition to a bilingual, bicultural approach to deaf education, which is what I had just recently spent four years in Sweden learning about. Um, mm. And they wanted to start recognizing ASL as an equal language to English and start building their students' linguistic competencies in both languages so that they could help them make the bridge between them. And she was so fascinated that I was interested in that approach to deaf education and knowledgeable about it and wanted to share my knowledge. And so shortly after meeting, I was in her school working with her teachers, um, giving them a better sense of the linguistic foundations of a bilingual approach. I, I'm continuing that work this year. I just had a meeting at the school this morning, where we're working on a, um, a curriculum for grammar development in, in a bilingual approach. So, so that meeting really made my career. And I just spoke about how I get to do all the things I want to do, right? If I, if I hadn't met Jody, many of those things um, certainly wouldn't have come so easily. So in terms of lasting impact, it's only been two years, but it's had an it's had a very dense impact very quickly because of because of all of the history that was behind it. Both of us did masters in education a very long a very long time ago, like nearly twenty years ago. We we started teaching in schools for the deaf. Both of us were very dissatisfied by what we saw in sort of business as usual in in deaf schools, and both left, but. I left and went the research route, right, an academic and more academic route. And she left and got deeper into family relationships. She moved into parent-infant education, um, school administration. So she was changing things from the inside and getting more knowledgeable about those, those early family connections and the importance of early language in a very real on the, on the ground sense, right? And I was doing the reading about it and researching how it can be in Sweden. And now that we've come together, you know, 15 or so years later, uh, we're able to support each other and, and able to do work that neither of us could do on our own because we chose those, those different paths. That that's uh, that's incredible, and especially I like how you described it as dense, uh, a, a, a dense impact in a short amount uh, of time. And that's been my experience with most of the people who've made a dramatic impact on my life is just how quickly they made such a big impact. Um, how meeting the right person or being open to meeting the right person can lead can can just nudge us sometimes to make a leap we've wanted to make but haven't been able to or haven't been willing to to take that risk to to go down an avenue that we're we're unsure of um i i love that story and you hit on a bunch of times within that story that kind of that both you and it was jody right yes uh that both you and jody were we're frustrated with the status quo and that brings me back to to your tedx talk which i wanted to get get back to um because again it was so awesome and and i'm not going to spoil it for anybody but the opening hook is so worth watching um and i i was right there with you like 24 hours before you gave it which was which was very exciting <laughs> to be <laughs> to be a part of the kind of final final push of that of that talk my question is what are the pushbacks that you're seeing? It, it, to some degree, your, your talk struck me as a lot of the work that you're doing and that you're, the education you're trying to put out there is either counterintuitive or it's um, counter to, as you said, the, the status quo and how things are being taught, even from the medical field. Can you talk a bit more about 
what is being taught, why it might be wrong and, and kind of what you're hoping people will, will do or adopt? Okay. Um, so yes, the general movement in deaf education, there's always been arguments between those who want to recognize, um, the strength of the deaf culture and sign language and have that be integrated into education the same way that we want to have bilingual education for speakers of Spanish, that their language and their culture are recognized in the school and are part of the curriculum and are not just considered um, sort of distractors to the language of school, right? That, that both language and culture are, are, are recognized in the school. So there's, there's a side of um, what they call historically bilingual bicultural education, where you want to recognize the deaf culture and, and, and deaf language and then build English in to, as an addition to that, right? Uh, and then the side that says, um, no, the most efficient way to learn to read and write and to be part of a hearing world is to use your hearing and your speech to the best of your ability. And all of our energy should be focused from very early on in making sure that children have as much access to sound and as much practice with speech as possible because that's how they're going to connect with hearing people and that's how they're going to learn to read and write. So there's there's always been both of those sides. But historically, the bilingual bicultural side has is felt more like a philosophical argument than um then it's becoming more of a, of a linguistic and, and cognitive argument, right? That mm -hmm. it used to be, let's have respect for our differences and let's appreciate the values that they bring into education. What's becoming more and more obvious um, through research, um, but still not recognized in, in schools, is this issue that lack of early access to language can have detrimental effects on a child far beyond delayed reading and writing ability, right? That the, uh, that the inability to make the social emotional connections that come with a shared language and the cognitive growth that comes from communication and interaction with people could be, could be more damaging to children later in their lives um, than we realize. Mm -hmm. Recently, um, I read what I think is a, a really important quote in this area, which is, we don't believe that everyone who doesn't wear a seatbelt is going to get into an accident, right? We know that just because you don't wear a seatbelt, that doesn't mean you're going to get in an accident. But we wear seatbelts anyway, because the risk of your getting into an accident, the risk of what will happen if you don't is so great that it's worth wearing a seatbelt anyway. Mm -hmm. And in, in the field of deaf education, you know, there's a group of people who are beginning to talk about language the same way, right? We don't know that just because a child doesn't sign when they're young, that they're going to end up with linguistic deprivation. But the risk that they might is great enough that we should be signing when they're young. Because some of what I talk about in my talk is that, you know, language develops, receptive language is developing for for a full year before you even see a child utter a word. And it's developing incredibly in that second year of life before you see the child really start communicating. They've developed so much linguistic knowledge that you can't see, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't see also if that knowledge isn't developing. And so if you're speaking at the child and trying to help them listen, there's no way of really knowing if they're listening and what they're taking in until they've reached a point where um, it's far beyond where a hearing child would have had access to language. And we know that that can be, that can be detrimental. Um, so, so in, in deaf education, um, 
there's, there's not, there's not a lot of good quality research on the effectiveness of, of a bilingual approach. Um, that's a problem in our field. There's not been a lot of data that children who go through bilingual programs come out as readers and writers, right? There's not a lot of research that shows that children who go through an oral approach do either, right? Mm -hmm. But because we can't prove that a bilingual approach is working well, the main emphasis is to say, well, what we do know, we do know that kids can learn to read and write through speaking and listening. So let's make sure speaking and listening is what we focus on and sign language is not essential for that. Um, so in many schools, that's what you, that's what you see that sign language is, is a support, but it's not a language itself. And if it's not a language itself, then not only was it not used when they were young to help them develop, um, language and cognition and relationships, but it's also not a resource you can draw on for teaching them a second language. So, um, so your, your argument, I just, for someone who, who knows very little about this, I'm gonna, let me take a second to try to try to put that into my own words, make sure I'm understanding. So, your argument, or at least your hypothesis, and I'm not sure where you're at in that, because um, um, you keep describing it as something that doesn't have a lot of research yet, which I assume is what you're doing, right? Uh, is right. Okay, so so I'm not sure if argument or hypothesis is the right word, but it seems that what you're saying is that sign language ought to be considered and taught. Uh, as a second language, no different than learning English and Spanish or French and Spanish or whatever, right? We know the benefits. We've studied uh, the benefits of bilingual, um, a bilingual upbringing, right? In young, in young kids. And you're saying that the sign language is not just a, as you said, a support to uh, getting immersed in the hearing world, but it could be that sign language would be crucial to one's might be crucial to one's development as a second language altogether. Is that, is, am I getting that? Yes. The only maybe slight modification I would make is second language implies a language that you've learned second. In education speak, it, yeah. it, it makes you think of you already have a first language and then you're learning a second language. Um, the idea with, um, you know, a bilingual approach is that ASL needs to be there from the very start, right? And then it could be developing in concert if, if the child is using listening and spoken language too. It could be developing in concert with spoken English, but that the child should be at the very least bilingual in ASL and a spoken language. And then, and then you'll see maybe at three, if their English is developing beautifully and you're, you see that there's really strong foundation for reading and writing and the, and you don't see a need to continue with sign language because the child has really is developing it sort of as a hearing child would, which sometimes happens that maybe you let go of the sign language if that's your choice. Right. But they've had their linguistic foundation. But in, in many cases, you know, the, the listening and spoken language isn't developing and the ASL should continue as not only a primary means of communication, but as something that will help build a bridge to English. So it's sort of dual language learning as opposed to a second language. Got it. That's, that's great. Thank you for the clarification. Let me bring it in with this. As someone who built a career in magic, I'll be the first to tell you that the representation in pop culture and kind of the movies of magicians is not flattering. Uh, I have to deal with you as a magician. You deal with that constantly. You meet someone, magician, they instantly go to whatever caricature was recently on a sitcom or a movie. It's usually just a 
you know, nerdy dude living in his mom's basement, bugging everyone in the world to pick a card and then messing the trick up. That's pretty much the, you know, until a few years ago where magic got really popular on America's Got Talent and all these other shows, that was always kind of the idea. So to to your side of things, is there a pop culture misrepresentation of deafness, of deaf culture that you'd like to be able to set the record straight? Anything for our listeners that that is just commonly misunderstood in pop culture about, about deafness? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it's hard to answer without making blanket, blanket statements that I'm, that I might end up regretting. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, so when I, when I talk to people who've had no experience with deafness, um, or maybe just seen sign language, I think the the underlying assumption, first of all, is that sign language is a version of English, right? That it's a signed form of English is often the assumption. Um, yet uh, a concurrent assumption that doesn't fit with that is that there's only one sign language in the world, right? It can't mm-hmm. both be visual English and there's only one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a more important one to debunk is that um, it is truly a visual a visual language in the sense that it uses all of the resources available to us in sight, um, which are in some ways beyond the resources we have available to us in sound, right? We have depth and we have size and we have things we can do simultaneously. Like sign language is fascinating in the way that it's a language that makes use of, of different senses. And so the language is structured very differently because, um, because it has those senses, uh, it has those different dimensions available to it. So I think, um, being aware of that is, is really important. Um, and I think the, uh, the other thing that most hearing people that I, that I talk to assume is that deaf people learn to read that they learn to read and write (laughs) until you mention that this is a struggle. They just assume that's how they access information. Well, of course they must be good readers and writers because they, they don't listen and speak. So how else would they, would they communicate? And I think, um, the fact that that's the, the main struggle of our field is, is helping more deaf people to become truly literate is something that I want more people to be, be aware of. Well, I really appreciate your time for, for me, uh, this, uh, and I'm sure for most, if not all of my listeners, uh, this will be very illuminating. Uh, I know it was for me when I got to uh, work with you very briefly the night before your TEDx talk, and then I got to enjoy live in the audience uh, you giving it. I'm, again, I'm going to make sure that's linked. Um, anything are there any resources, and you can send them to me after the fact if you want, but are there any resources you'd like to have me uh, have in the show notes for someone who might want to learn more about this? So I have an editorial coming out um, this spring on, it's called What Went Unsaid in my TEDx. It's a, um, that I could certainly send you to as, Great. A, as a link. Um, and then this won't probably be out for another few months, but I'm right. I'm currently working on a literature review on this topic um, to people with more of an academic interest on thinking of deaf children as English language learners, um, which will be coming out in the next, I think four or five months. Um, so I could share those with you. I also actually have the curriculum work I've been doing with Jody. We just published that in a, in a deaf ed magazine um, to see the kind of ways that our, our work has come together in a, in a school. Oh, that, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. If you can send me those links, I'll make sure they get into the, uh, into the show notes on, uh, on the website and, and anywhere that, that people are listening to this. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'll let you get back to your day. And it was really, really nice to talk to you again. You too. Thanks, Brian. 
Before you watch Amanda's perspective-shifting TEDx talk, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, if you're ever unsure of your path, simply take the next option that interests you. To quote my favorite book, The Phantom Tollbooth, there are no wrong roads to anywhere. Second, if you're trying to connect with someone, particularly someone you don't understand, follow their lead. It's a tweak on the golden rule. Don't treat others as you wish to be treated. Treat others as they wish to be treated. And finally, innovation often requires an outsider's perspective. Amanda and Jody have been so successful together precisely because they approach the same topic from different vantage points. Next time you're stuck, consider asking advice from someone outside your area of expertise or even outside your industry. Head to onenewperson.com for Amanda's TEDx talk, the show notes, and related links. Remember to subscribe via Apple, Google, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Do you have questions for me, Amanda, or any of my previous guests? Send them to onenewperson at gmail.com. I'm working on a Q&A episode for In Between Seasons 1 and 2. Speaking of which, next episode, Monday, May 27th, is the Season 1 finale. And I gotta tell you, you don't want to miss this one. I'm not going to give it away, but for those in the know, I'll give you a hint. I like your hat. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.